You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We continue to hear God's Word today in the Old Testament from Genesis 13 and in the New Testament from Luke 16. We read these passages in connection with our confession concerning the eighth commandment of God's law, you shall not steal. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. We continue our reading in Luke 16, beginning at verse 19, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, 
Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. You as a congregation have come to Lord's Day 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may. Deal with him as I would like others to deal with me and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the reasons that God gives us the Ten Commandments is to shape our lives in such a way that we become more and more like him so that we increasingly become conformed to God's image. He has created us in His image, and He wants us to be more and more conformed to His image. We believe, as we just confessed in the words of the Apostles' Creed, that God is triune. He is one God in three persons. And that's something very significant for us as we seek to live in conformity to God's image. And as we seek to understand what we're looking at this afternoon, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live together in perfect communion and love. No selfishness there. No envy or greed among Father, Son, and Spirit. Each of the persons of the Trinity gives glory to the others. And none of the persons of the Trinity lacks anything. God Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the the best model of how not to sin against the Eighth Commandment. How not to steal. How not to be greedy. Our theme this afternoon, live by the Spirit and you will shun greed, comes from Galatians 5 verse 6. 
I'm sure you recognize those words from Galatians 5, verse 16. Not Galatians 5, verse 6, but Galatians 5, verse 16, where Paul says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Such a theme is surely fitting, also since it is only a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago that we celebrated Pentecost as a Christian church when we remembered the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's through the Spirit that we are brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son, the triune God. The perfect communion that the triune God enjoys, He invites us to participate in. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives us the Ten Commandments as one of the means by which we may live in communion with Him. Now, God's purpose with the commandments is not only to bind us closer in love to Himself, but also to bind us closer in love to our neighbor. That principle holds true with respect to the Eighth Commandment, too. Shunning greed is a matter of deferring to others, of of being set on giving to others rather than getting. It's a matter of focusing on the other rather than the self. The way it is in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit deferring to one another, giving to one another, glorifying each other. Notice, therefore, that throughout Lord's Day 42, the focus is shifted from self to neighbor. From my needs and wants to the needs of others. And this is what we hope to see this afternoon, particularly from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. So it would be helpful if you would have your Bible open to this parable in Luke 16. The Holy Spirit wants to bring us into communion with the triune God and into harmony with our neighbor. And in order for us to experience that communion and harmony, we need to shun greed. And for that, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to live by the Spirit in order to shun greed. Or to put it another way, we need to live by the Spirit so that we will not gratify our greed. To use words that are close to Paul's in Galatians 5. And we need to do this, as we hope to see shortly. Otherwise, we will become isolated. We will become alienated from others and from God. You see, that's what greed does. Greed alienates people from God and others in this life. And, furthermore, greed lands us in eternal hell the place of eternal alienation and torment. Let's turn to the parable then in Luke 16. There was a rich man, Jesus says, who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Purple and fine linen 
was the apparel, was the apparel, the clothing of kings and nobles. Such apparel was the sign of honor and wealth. But at this rich man's gate, there was a beggar. He must have been crippled, for we're told that the beggar was laid at the gate in verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Others brought Lazarus there every day in his wheelchair, we might say, so that he could beg. Lazarus was dependent on others to get there. Lazarus was not only crippled, he was also covered with sores, we're told in verse 20. There's another significant detail in verse 21. Notice that Jesus says there in verse 21 that the dogs came and licked Lazarus' sores. This suggests that Lazarus was not only crippled, but also that he was poorly dressed since his sores were exposed to the dogs. Lazarus was very poor. He was in rough shape. Lazarus, Jesus says, even longed to eat from what fell from the rich man's table. And notice that it, notice these, these small words that we might quickly read over are very important. Notice that it says in verse 21 that, that Lazarus really could only long to eat what fell from the rich man's table. It doesn't say that he ate from the rich man's table. He longed to eat from it. In other words, the rich man was so stingy and selfish that poor Lazarus never tasted so much as a crumb of bread or scrap of food even from underneath the rich man's table. In fact, not even the dogs got a taste of the food under the rich man's table. That's why the dogs that were hanging around the rich man's house were licking Lazarus's sores. Even the dogs were going hungry there. Even the dogs had to ease their hunger by licking the salt crystals off the beggar's sores. Next, Jesus tells us what happened when the two men died. The injustice was set straight. Lazarus was brought to Abraham's side by the angels. He had no fancy funeral like the rich man certainly had. In fact, Lazarus probably had no funeral at all. He died as a pauper. But in a sense, he had the best funeral anyone could have. Because as we're told in our text, the angels formed his funeral procession. The angels brought him right into heaven. Lazarus the poor man who had nothing all his life entered the joy of God in paradise and sat down with Abraham. And a procession of angels brought him there. After the life of misery, he was comforted by Father Abraham. What about the rich man? 
Well, Jesus tells us that the rich man ended up in hell, in torment. And now he was the beggar. Well, in torment, the rich man pleaded with Abraham. Verse 24, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. You see that? Suddenly, when Lazarus could do something for the rich man and had something the rich man needed, he remembered Lazarus' name. Before, Lazarus was a nobody to the rich man. Now, suddenly, when he had something to gain from him, the rich man calls out for him, even by name. Abraham denied his request, Jesus says. He reminded the rich man that during his life, he received so many good things, while Lazarus only received bad things. In the original language, in fact, it says in verse 25 that the rich man collected good things during his life. The rich man collected riches. He accumulated wealth without letting anything go. Not even the crumbs from his table. But now the roles are reversed. Besides, Abraham told the rich man, as we see in verse 26, that there was a chasm between them. Verse 26, And besides all this between us and you, Abraham says to the rich man, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. This chasm is the chasm that exists between heaven and hell. Once you're in heaven, you stay there. And once you're in hell, you don't leave there. Now, how are we to understand this parable? There are those who treat this parable merely as a socialistic parable. It's been interpreted by some then as meaning that God has come to reverse the labels for rich and poor. In this scheme, today's poor are tomorrow's rich. Today's rich are tomorrow's poor. But that isn't the point that Jesus wishes to make here. His riches weren't the man's problem. What he did with the riches was his problem. The rich man's greed was his problem. It's important for us to recognize that, brothers and sisters. This is not the parable, this is not the parable about every rich man. This is the parable of the greedy rich man. You see, God doesn't condemn riches as such. Notice where Lazarus ended up when he came into heaven. He ended up at whose side? Abraham's side. And Abraham, too, had been a rich man during his life, as we read in Genesis 13. He had so many possessions that he and Lot had to separate because the land couldn't support them. 
And Abraham, as we also read from Genesis 13, was a very generous man. He gave Lot, his young nephew, the first choice. We might have expected him to think, well, I'll choose first. Let the young buck get what's left over. But no, he gave Lot, his nephew, the first choice. He was a very generous rich man. He was a godly rich man. Consider also what Jesus says in the previous parable. He says there, Luke 16, verse 9, He says there, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And His point there is that the manner in which people manage worldly wealth is a gauge of how well they will handle true riches. As it says in Luke 16, verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. In other words, God wants the rich to be good stewards of their wealth. Not to be greedy. Not to hoard. Now, perhaps the rich man thought that he was being a good steward of his wealth. After all, not even a crumb or a scrap of food made it to the floor under his table. Maybe he made sure that his servants arranged the portions in such a way that no food at all was wasted. But that showed, in fact, that he was stingy. He was a hoarder. He was greedy and he was tight-fisted. The whole time he was eating and not letting a crumb to the ground, there was the poor man and the dogs waiting outside for even a scrap of food to eat. The rich man of this parable was unrighteous. He was a poor steward. No matter how wealthy he was, he was a poor steward because he fell short on mercy. And though he called Abraham his father, in verse 24, very pious, Father Abraham. That's how good Jews referred to Abraham. Father Abraham. Although he called Abraham his father, he was not a true son of Abraham. Again, remember how Abraham during his life was a generous man. He placed others before himself. The rich man was punished then, not because he was rich. The rich man was punished because he was not generous with his riches. And in this way, the rich man alienated himself from Lazarus and certainly also alienated himself from others. He was an egotist and thought only about himself. Notice that in the parable, the only others that the rich man is concerned about are his own brothers. And probably only because they had inherited his wealth. Or perhaps because they were the only ones in the very small circle that he had drawn around himself. What about us then? It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. 
the same question applies to all of us. What is our attitude towards money? How do we use wealth? Whether it is little or lots. And then Jesus wants to teach us through this parable, as God teaches us in His law, to be generous with our money. He teaches us to be happy to dispense some of our earnings and food and other things into the hands of those in need. He teaches us not to pretend that we don't notice the poor around us. He teaches us not to pretend that we are unaware of all the charities that exist to help those in need. Through this parable, Jesus teaches us don't budget every last penny for yourself. Don't be selfish. Don't draw a small circle around yourself and thus become isolated and alienated from others. Because that's the attitude of those who end up in torment. They are cut off from others. Those who place a chasm between themselves and those in need will discover that the chasm is still there when they are in need. And then the chasm will not be able to be bridged. It's clear from Jesus' parable that it is necessary for us to address our attitude towards money today. In other words, to address it right away before it's too late. This is not something that we can put off. We can't say, well, I'll give my attention to the Eighth Commandment in a year or two. My mortgage is paid off. Or my car. Or when I have this or that, then I'll think about this really seriously. No. We need to think about this today. Once we die. And none of us knows when that will be. The state we are brought into will be permanent. Either eternal blessedness or eternal torment. What does this mean? Well, this means that we must learn the lesson of generosity early. So we need to teach our children, for example, already when they receive their first allowance, their first bit of money for their piggy bank, their first earnings from their after-school job or babysitting, to give some to the poor, to be generous. We need to teach our children not to be greedy. We need to teach them how to loosen their grip on their money and their toys and their things and to be willing to share, to be willing to give something up for those who are in need. Remember what Jesus says just before this parable, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Already when our children are little and they only have little possessions, we need to be teaching them about these things. So God's Word is for you, children and young people. 
soon as you receive money from mom and dad or from babysitting or from your part-time job, set some of that money aside. Give it to the poor. Don't put all your money in your piggy bank or your bank account or wherever you put it. Open your hand to the needy, just like God does. And do it with a smile on your face. Do it happily. Be happy that you can help those in need. For as Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. Share your toys. Share your things. Loosen your grip on those things that you claim to be yours. Let's all learn to be like this. Young and old. What do we do when we notice a brother or sister who is ill-clad because of poverty? What do we do when we know about a family that really has trouble making ends meet? With whom we might generously share our wealth or our possessions by letting go of what we have. Even just loosening our grip a little to share with them. Or do we pretend like the rich man not to notice such self-evident things? If so, then like this rich man, we too will become alienated in our self-centeredness. We will cut ourselves off and sooner or later we will discover that we are permanently cut off from the fellowship of the redeemed. That's where we will end up if we continue in greed. Notice that the rich man, even when he ends up in the torment of hell, doesn't have a a fundamental change of mind. He's no different in hell than he was on earth. His self-centeredness is permanent. Isn't it amazing? That even when he's in torment, the rich man treats Lazarus like an underling. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus. As if Lazarus is some sort of slave of his, some sort of call boy. Even in torment, the rich man treats Lazarus like someone down there as sort of gopher. The rich man feels no guilt whatsoever, apparently, about his earlier attitude towards Lazarus. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't feel sorry for the rich man or ask why God would let such a thing happen to anyone. Why God would punish people with eternal torment like this. For the rich man really got what he wanted. All life long, he alienated people and placed a chasm between himself and the lowly poor. And now he gets what he worked so hard to protect his whole life long. Isolation from everyone in hell. And also alienation from God. All his life he had lived far away from God. He had kept all his money for himself. And he didn't acknowledge that everything he had was from God. For he didn't acknowledge God. But something that we see in our text as well. Notice that all his pleading is directed towards Abraham. The rich man calls out to Abraham. 
He never even so much as mentions God. The rich man doesn't lament being alienated from God. He only laments being in the place of torment. Look at the request that the rich man makes of Abraham in verses 27 and 28. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Then Abraham replies by reminding him that they have the Word of God just like he had. And that if they only heeded God's commands, they would be safe. Verse 29, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The rich man doesn't think that is good enough. He acts now just like he did in his earthly life. He knows better than God. He has thought of a better way. Look at verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he persists. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham answers the rich man again, pointing him to the Word. Verse 31, He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Let's read that again. He said to him, Abraham said to the rich man, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham's prediction proved true, didn't it? The rich man was convinced that if some spectacular miracle was performed, then his brothers would for sure believe Well, not many months later, someone did miraculously return from the dead. You know who that was. Christ Jesus. He died. And on the third day, He arose again from the dead. The miracle surpassing all miracles happened that Easter Sunday. Well then, whose words proved true? The rich man's or Abraham's? After Jesus had miraculously risen from the dead, did those who had previously not believed suddenly believe? Did the Sanhedrin suddenly become converted and place their trust in the risen Savior? Maybe one or two. But for the rest, no. They hardened themselves in in their unbelief. They bribed the soldiers with, with a large sum of money. And told them to lie about what had happened. They told the soldiers to tell everyone that His disciples had come during the night and stole His body. And they did it with money. And this story, this lie, has been widely circulated among Jews to this very day. We read in Matthew 28. The rich man tried to be wiser than God. He thought that a dramatic experience needed to be added to the Scriptures. To him, the Bible was just a book. 
made up of dead letters without power. And that a person needs to have an experience in order to believe. The rich man betrayed his own hatred for the Scriptures, for God's Word, pure and unadulterated. He wanted something more spectacular than the bland law of Moses. And in this way, he was really blaming God for his own condition, wasn't he? In his response to Abraham, he was implying that if only he had been visited by someone who rose from the dead, he would have believed. But even in torment, he would not take God at His word. Even in torment, he was blaming God for injustice. He had alienated from himself from God in life and he would remain alienated from God forever in hell. What about us then? Will we take God at His Word? God has told us in the law of Moses, you shall not steal. God has told us in His Word, in His law, open your hand to the poor. Be kind and generous to the orphan. Make contact with beggars like Lazarus before it is too late. Jesus told this parable because He wanted the greedy rich to repent. And He wanted to warn the righteous rich not to become proud and selfish in their wealth. Because that can happen too. But you know, brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't just tell the parable. Jesus didn't just tell the story. And Jesus hasn't just told us what to do. Jesus lived the word He spoke. And He he did for us what He has told us to do. Consider this. Jesus was rich. Jesus was rich. He lived in glory. And when He saw us outside the gate as beggars, full of sores from head to toe, Jesus noticed us. He came to us. He left His wealth behind in heaven. And He came down to earth to save us. He treated our sores. In fact, He became poor so that we, by His poverty, might become rich. And He didn't just throw us a few crumbs and scraps into our laps. Instead, Jesus has showered us with all the riches of His kingdom, eternal life and glory. And on on Pentecost, He gave us His Spirit so that we may live, so that we may obey this commandment of Moses, and so that we may live in harmony and love, self-giving and generosity 
finding our joy in focusing on the needs of others instead of only ourselves. Learning the joy of giving instead of getting. Living with others as God lives with us. And as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live with one another. Each serving the other so that no one lacks anything. Then, brothers and sisters, instead of the prospect of an eternity in hell and torment, we may look forward to life in heaven in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with Abraham and Lazarus on the right side of the chasm with all those to whom God is bringing His kingdom. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.